WHQR Public Media. This is a special edition of the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. And we are here to talk about what else? Oh, the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge? Okay, we're going to have to do a separate Newsroom on that. No, we are here to talk about the new Hanover Community Endowments announcement this week of over $53 million in grants. We're going to dig into some of the reasons that this year feels and looks so different than last year's inaugural grant cycle. And we're going to talk about some of the grants the endowment made and didn't make and the conversations behind all of that. And while acknowledging that this is a tremendous amount of money that will no doubt do a tremendous amount of good, we're going to look at some of the community reaction, which has not been universally positive. Yeah, it's a lot of money coming into this community, and there were definitely some surprises in who got funding and who did not. That's right. And so at the top, I want to lay out really quick why this year probably feels so much different than last year. And that is because this is the first year the endowment is making what they are calling strategic grants. So last year, if you recall, grants were capped at a quarter million dollars or 50 percent of an organization's overall revenue. And they were largely for one year projects. A lot of people got vans, money for, you know, add ons to their building or just general operating help. But none of the big swing for the fences, moonshot style projects that the endowment and specifically endowment CEO William Buster has been teasing for a couple years. This year, they took their first crack at it. We had a couple of different grants that looked like those big strategic moonshots, like you said. The first one is a nursing student pipeline to address the nursing shortage that we've had at Novant for many years. Uh, This looks like UNCW collaborating with Cape Fear Community College and New Hanover County Schools, as well as the Chamber of Commerce to sort of facilitate a pipeline of students who can become nurses in this community. That's right. And it's over $20 million in grants, about $10 million each for UNCW and CFCC, a quarter million for the chamber, and just over a million for the school district. Now, this grant actually came from outside the endowment, and it's been in the works, we're told, for over a year. Uh, Members of the educational community and other stakeholders, including people from Novant, have been batting this idea around for a long time. Now, I should say Novant is not officially a part of this grant, and the endowment told us that they weren't in conversation with Novant, and they didn't know that Novant was going to announce uh, on Monday at at a press conference about this grant in general that Novant was putting their own $10 million in, including $5 million and scholarships. But this is something that was actually in the works long before the endowment even opened its applications for strategic grants in September. A quick note, we also saw another major new project come out of this. It is the Community Justice Center that will be built in the Harrelson Center. This was more than $3 million in a grant that will largely go to Ben David, DA, soon-to-be former DA Ben David's brainchild. And the goal of this center is providing wraparound services for both victims and offenders in these crimes to try and prevent recidivism and try and prevent the cycle of the victim becoming next year's defendant as Ben David likes to say. That's right. And I'm sure you have a lot of questions about this. This is more than $5 million. It's a new program. And early next year, early in January, uh, there will be a press conference to get more into the details. Our mutual colleague, Camille Mojica, has called dibs on this. So stay tuned next year for some reporting on this. But I do want to say a few more things about this big moonshot project to, that is basically designed to shore up the, the healthcare worker pipeline. The first is a lot of people had concerns about, well, isn't this just helping Novant? 
as we have seen over the last two years, Novant has struggled seriously with staffing. It almost crippled the hospital. In fact, the federal government was pretty close to pulling Medicaid and Medicare contracts with the hospital, which would effectively financially just ruin it. And so, yes, uh, we asked Chair Bill Cameron of the endowment, Isn't, doesn't this specifically help Novant? He said yes, but also that that's not the point, because if Novant's New Hanover Regional Medical Center fails, the people who pay the price are our community members. I do want to note the reason that that's a question that we have, why are we helping Novant, is because half of the board for the endowment is made up of people who've been placed there by Novant. The other half is basically coming from New Hanover County itself. New Hanover County's uh, Board of Commissioners selects them. And then there are two appointees who come from the board selecting appointees. So the reason that there's these questions around supporting Novant is that Novant got to choose who got to choose the grants. Yes. Uh, So, yes, six of the 13 board members on the endowment are appointed by Novant. So we put this question to the endowment, and they noted that, yes, it will help Novant. It will also help doctor's offices all over the region. It will help places like Dozier Memorial down in Southport and Brunswick County. But all that said, we still wanted to know if the endowment board members who were appointed by Novant, if those six members had recused themselves, and the endowment told us no, they didn't. Now, there were some board members who did recuse themselves from votes during this grant round to kind of get a sense of where the line is for, like, conflict of interest. So the endowment tells us that Dr. Khadija Tribier-Reed recused herself um, on votes for grants for Smart Start of New Hanover County and MedNorth Health Center, which she's affiliated with. Uh, Board member Michelle Holbrook recused herself from the Greater Wilmington Chamber Foundation grant. That's part of this uh, healthcare worker pipeline. And uh, Eldamira Segovia also recused herself uh, because she's associated with the College of Health and Human Services at UNCW. So that's kind of where the line is for the endowment. You have to be much more closely associated with the organization that is getting money from the endowment. In the case of, you know, a person appointed by Novant who is approving a grant that will help Novant but is aimed at the general healthcare community, that was not specific enough for recusal. The other thing I want to say about this is that part of the grant is not just to create a pipeline, to create people who graduate from CFCC or UNCW or both, but to keep them here in the region afterwards, which is, again, why it would benefit Novant. So there will be some kind of mechanism, some kind of strings attached to scholarships, perhaps, that will keep people here. And we went to a press conference on Monday morning and asked the Chamber of Commerce, we asked uh, President Natalie English, how do you define here? You're talking about the importance of keeping healthcare workers here. How do you define here? I would say we define here as, as in the region. Uh, the work of, of the endowment is institutions in New Hanover County. And, um, and I think from the, from the creation, the beginning of the creation of the endowment, there was real awareness that investing its money in New Hanover County institutions will have a far-reaching impact. And so we fully expect that there will be students from counties around us who will participate in these programs at the university and the community college, and that some of them may work inside New Hanover County ultimately, and some of them may work outside. Here is the region. So my follow-up would be, where will they live? Because you had mentioned something about housing. I think most nursing students would like to know that. Um, I, I don't, I can't speak for the endowment, so I'll let William come up next, but I do know that housing, period, no, with no descriptor, housing in our region is a challenge today. 
Uh, and so, yes, part of our vision is to explore how we might create some sort of cohort affordable housing for nurses and then maybe other healthcare professionals, again, to keep them sticky, right? Create a community of them to keep them here. Um, and yes, um, I believe there are, uh, are a lot more conversations that need to be had uh, by people that aren't even in the room today around what housing on a broader scale looks like. And we bring this up because the endowment is specifically keeping all of its funding inside New Hanover County. But this is an interesting example where people who may end up in Pender or Brunswick or even Columbus County could benefit from this program. And that could include housing. Now, I want to be clear, there are no specific details out there yet, but Natalie English did say one potential part of this pipeline grant would be what she called cohort housing. So basically housing for nursing students and maybe graduates. Again, we don't have details, but that's one of the ways that people from the whole region could benefit. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things we've heard in this community for many, many years, certainly the entire time I've been here and really going back decades, there is a housing shortage in New Hanover County. And the category of people who a lot of public officials are most concerned about are uh, the workforce that we want to keep in this community, nurses and firefighters and police officers and all kinds of other folks who deserve to stay in New Hanover County, according to public officials, but can't necessarily afford to do so. So asking whether they can go to Pender or Brunswick, because those are slightly more affordable than New Hanover County, is an interesting question. All the more interesting since the endowment did not put any funding towards housing in this iteration. Yeah. So I want to talk about the timeline real quick so you can get a sense of how this happened. If you weren't following along very closely, in August, the endowment announced a number of what they called strategic opportunities. So these are the moonshots because the endowment isn't telling people what to do. It's saying, please come to us with projects that kind of fit in these buckets and we will fund them. And those buckets are the four main pillars of the endowment. That's community safety, education, social and health equity, and community development. So this year in August, when they put out their request for strategic grants for the first time, again, these are these big swings at big issues. There were six of them. One of them under the community development bucket is affordable housing. And Kelly, from your reporting and from the community agenda, we know that housing is the top issue in this region. Although we don't always know exactly what people mean when they say affordable housing, we do know that they were looking at that in general. So when the grants got announced and we saw nothing, uh, we were surprised. I know from the phone calls I've overheard you having, a lot of people in the housing world were surprised, to put it mildly. So when we put that question to the endowment, they told us that this was very intentional. Yes. So what we have heard is that on Friday, all of the organizations, whether they got grants or did not get grants, they found out that news individually. And every housing nonprofit that applied got a no. And what I've heard on background from various or individuals is that that Friday reaction from a lot of people was, let's go burn down the endowment. <laughs> Just absolute shock and rage at what they had expected to be kind of a shoo-in proposal. Uh, let's fund housing. It's one of the biggest needs that we have in this community. The endowment reached out and said, we'd like to have a meeting on Monday with everybody in housing. And they said, look, we do want to fund you. It's not a no. It's a not right now. We want to work with you to develop a plan going forward. And we want to fund you in early 2024. This is different from what we had been hearing before. 
We had heard about yearly grant cycles coming up in fall and winter. And instead, they're now saying it'll be a rolling basis of applications with quarterly investments that they'll make. So it sounds like the endowment is planning to have those conversations about housing starting now, with the idea being that they will fund something with housing in the first two quarters of next year. Yeah, and we brought in the Endowment's Director of Communications, uh, Kevin Maurer, who you may remember. We've actually collaborated with him as a journalist in his previous life. And so we asked him a number of questions, including you know, how the endowment thinks about affordable housing writ large, whether that includes homelessness or workforce housing or, or other issues. And we also asked him about the ability the endowment has had to communicate what it wants from the public and specifically from those who are working in the housing space. And, and just a note here, when Kevin is talking about the breakfast with Buster here, we've had some reporting based on this before, but these are Chatham House rules meetings that the endowment holds quarterly on different issues. Uh, specifically here, he's talking about one that was about housing, Kelly, that you attended in any case, here's a little bit of our conversation with Kevin where we're trying to get at what happened here with housing. What's the endowment's view on what housing means uh, in terms of what it's interested in investing in? I think and this is somewhat based on, on our own conversation that you attended with the Breakfast of Buster, which was, I think what we learned from that, it's a, it's a continuum. It's, it's unsheltered to you know the mid-tier housing. And I think that's the complexity of the issue. I think that's why it's always on the forefront of the lists of most pressing issues that we face. And I think that's why, while it was an, uh, an unpopular move, I think, I think that kind of strategic pivot is necessary in order to actually address this really complex issue. Talking about that continuum, um, homeless services is obviously at one end, and then workforce housing up to 120 AMI is at the other end. Is the endowment interested in addressing homeless services? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very much part of the, the, the way we're looking at this from every, like, different pathways to addressing them. And, I, and unfortunately, I don't think there's one size fits, and I think you've done a lot of very good reporting on that. I think in order to address this correctly, we need to pull back. We need to come up with a common operating picture with common goals. And I think one of those goals has to be to address the whole continuum. I get the sense that there is some ideological daylight between some of the board members on issues like permanent supportive housing. Is that part of the reason that the endowment can't articulate yet what exactly it wants to do? No, I mean, I think, I mean, ideological, I think there's 13, you know, sets of skills and opinions on that board. And I think that's in some way what gives that board its ability to to manage an endowment like this. I think the reason why we can't articulate exactly what we're going to do is that I think we're serious when we say we want to work by, with, and through our partners. So I think it would be, it would be outside of our mission and outside of our philosophy to dictate from the top, this is what we're going to do about housing. Instead, I think we wanted to go from the bottom up. And I think the only way we're going to find a solution, and I don't know if we can solve it, but the only way we're going to find a, pro a programming that can address it in a meaningful way is to go with the people who do the work, have them say, this is what we think we need to do, and then figure out how to create a program or a funding around that, that initiative. So think of it like bottom up instead of top down. I mean, frankly, I feel like the applications that they probably gave as, you know, 30 or so different housing organizations were them saying, this is what we need and can you help us get there? I know that there's this idea of collaboration as a component of this, but um, that didn't seem to be the expectation for education the same way. I mean, there were a lot of different grants given for education for individual organizations that were doing different things, not collaboratively. So I'm kind of curious about why it's different for housing. 
To give an example, like uh, MedNorth didn't collaborate with anyone to get millions of dollars. Beacon Education didn't collaborate with anyone to get millions of dollars. Um, Cape Fear Community College didn't have to collaborate with anyone for their foundation to get over $5 million. Surely that there are housing projects around here that could handle the capacity of several million dollars um, without needing, really, to collaborate. I think part of it, too, is that we're, we're taking a, a, a different tact with housing. We're taking more of a strategic look at this and trying to build this collaboration around it. Because I, I think what one of the things we took away from that Breakfast with Buster was this idea of, of the continuums that you mentioned. And I think taking a step back and trying to address all of them is, is the intent of this kind of strategic pause and, and pivot. Do you think that was communicated effectively to those partners before they got the rejections? No, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think we can do a better job of communicating it. I think we've, we've, we've made efforts. Uh, we've had meetings. We did have a, a housing meeting. We've had one. I, I think that's just the start. Um, I think we also have had meetings with, you know, the county about this. We've had meetings with, with city officials about this. Uh, we've had meetings with experts outside of the community with this. Could we do a, had done a better job of communicating? Absolutely. I think we can still do have a better job of communicating. I mean, we talk a lot about capacity. We talked a lot about it at the public meeting. I think that it goes for us, too. And I, and I think we're learning, too. So, you know, I would take the hit. I think we could have done a better job. I hope in the future I think we will do a better job. And I think a lot of that will come from our collaboration with the, the community. I think when we talk about collaboration, we need to remember that we're talking about us, too. We need to be around the table. We need to be part of that ideation as they try to come up and think through and then kind of work shoulder to shoulder with our partners. So, no, I, I think we could have done better at that. So that was part of our conversation with Kevin Maurer, who is the director of communications for the endowment. And one of the things that came up in our conversation is that housing wasn't just a top priority for this strategic grant round for the endowment. It's not just a top issue now. It's an issue that the public has been frustrated with for a long time. And this is because it's been a conversation without action for so long. Kelly, you've been following this for a couple of years. You've, you've watched this. Absolutely. I mean, going back to 2021, we got the Bowen report that said we'll be short 20,000 units in New Hanover County by the end of 2030. So we are looking down the barrel of an actual crisis in this community. Uh, that led to conversations around having a housing bond, and we ended up not putting that on the ballot. The county commission decided to not fund that. We got $15 million instead uh, from the county's existing coffers. And that kind of led everybody to go, okay, well, if we won't get $50 million from a housing bond, maybe the endowment with its 50 plus million dollars a year will come through and they'll come in strong and they'll support housing. And that did not happen this time. Exactly. So the the endowment has been the target of a lot of frustration this week, but certainly the collective inability to make meaningful moves on this has been a source of frustration for years. The county's plan of, of rolling out $15 million over five years, $3 million a year, has created affordable housing units. I, it's important to give them credit for that. But we're talking hundreds of units, not thousands or tens of thousands. And so there are a lot of people who are still just living with untenable rent situations. And that's a problem. And so the endowment is very new. It's not fully staffed. But from the community's point of view, it feels like they are very late to the game to just now saying, we're going to convene all of these community 
members. We're going to convene these housing experts and, and start the conversation. Many people in the public are thinking, well, we've been having this conversation for a decade. Yes, we are restarting a conversation that has been restarted years and years and years back. Uh, one thing I will note is part of the frustration that I have heard from people on background uh, is that they have not seen members of the endowment staff or uh, members of the board coming to some of the existing institutions that follow housing really closely. The continuum of care has not seen them coming to meetings. The Workforce Housing Advisory Committee, which is a collaboration between the city and county governments with people who are very intelligent about these things, they are the ones who came up with the, uh, the plan for the housing bond. They're not showing up to WAC meetings. They're also not showing up to the Keep Your Housing Coalition's meetings. So this conversation has been happening in the last year. The endowment just hasn't participated in it, and they are starting that participation now. It has still been difficult for the endowment to articulate what exactly they are looking for. William Buster said this during a public meeting this week, and uh, Kevin Maurer told us the same thing in the studio, is that they can't quite put fine language on what they want, what housing means, how they're going to approach different sectors of the housing, and what a meaningful collaboration will look like. And one of the frustrations, and I know we're going to use that word a lot during the show, but there is a lot of that this week. One of the frustrations we've heard is that during the public meeting and in an interview with us, Endowment Chair Bill Cameron kept pointing to the nursing pipeline or the healthcare worker pipeline grant as an example of big moonshot collaboration. And I think that that is unfair because the endowment didn't come up with that and they didn't create a space for that collaboration to come about. People came to the endowment with a fully formed collaborative idea. And the institutions that are collaborating are some of the largest in our region and the most well-funded in our region. And other nonprofits may not have an entire department or an entire office of you know community engagement. And UNCW has bandwidth, CFCC has bandwidth. And they had the Chamber of Commerce on board to help, you know, to help steer the collaboration, to help make sure people were on the same page. I just don't think other organizations have had those resources. And so by holding that out as an example, I, I think it sets an, an impossibly high bar. And so what we are waiting for and what we, you know, what the endowment has promised to do is to help do some of that stuff, to, to convene those people together, and hopefully to eventually come up with some explanation of what a plan for housing would look like. Although, as you pointed out, there are other plans that we have paid taxpayer money for. So we, we want to say two things at the same time. One is that we understand the endowment recognizes this is a serious problem. We understand that the endowment might be the only entity in our region that has the resources to actually get something done and the will to do it. But you, it's really hard to not be sympathetic with the frustration of not just people in the housing sector, but just everyday residents. It's also worth noting that this collaboration uh, that the endowment is pushing is not something that came up with education, for example. Um, other than the nursing pipeline, we saw a lot of education nonprofits get a little bit of funding from the endowment that were not collaborating with any other organizations. So that collaboration requirement seems to apply only in certain cases. The other thing I will note is that housing nonprofits did come forward with a collaborative approach. Several different organizations banded together to bring a proposal forward that was an innovative new idea in the housing space. 
that also got rejected. So we do know that housing tried to be collaborative in its approach. Some of these longtime institutions that I will not name here, they have all tried to bring this collaboration forward and they still got the no. So that lack of communication is a challenge. And I know that they also only had 250 words to expand on their collaborative efforts with other organizations in the online form that the endowment provided. So without clear communication and ongoing meetings, these uh, nonprofits were at a disadvantage. And it seems like that was just not the top priority for this iteration uh, or for this grant cycle with the endowment. Going forward, maybe those conversations will start to be had more, and it seems like those conversations are key for getting these grants off the ground. Yeah, one thing I can say about, regardless of which you know of the four buckets we're talking about or, or what you know what problem a grant is addressing, the endowment staff is still smaller than many other comparably sized philanthropic organizations. You know, this week we took a look at the Dogwood Trust which came out of uh, for-profit healthcare company HCA's purchase of Mission Hospital in Asheville. And a lot of people have looked at this alongside a nonprofit healthcare system, Novant's purchase of our formerly county-owned hospital. Um, and it is not an apples-to-apples comparison. But it is still interesting to look at the two. The Dogwood uh, organization is around $1.6 billion. Our New Hanover Community Endowment is around $1.25 billion. Just looking at Dogwood's staff, you know, they've got several people on their, you know, on the web page, not just like, you know, the uh, the lower ranking people who might, who might be just administrative assistants. But they have named people, you know, of different programs, including housing. And it may just be that the endowment needs more people. And from experts we've talked to, it is not uncommon for organizations, especially new organizations, to be hesitant to staff up. And for good reason. The, the optics can be bad if you are not putting you can never put enough money into the community. But if the community feels like you are not funding enough projects and yet you are hiring people, that can that can cause some blowback. But at the end of the day, most of the experts we talk to, uh, people like Aaron Dorfman and Phil Buchanan, um, sort of thought leaders in the field of philanthropy, were like, yeah, you need staff for this reason. So you can have these conversations so that phone calls don't not get returned, so meetings don't get ghosted, so on and so forth. Absolutely. That does bring me to another point. Um, the decision makers in the case of this uh, grant cycle, that, that was the board. It was not staff of the endowment. We heard last year when they made the first grant cycle that it was the board that made the decision and that in future grant cycles it would go down to staff. And we heard that they kept it with the board this time. What was the reasoning for that, Ben? So the reasoning was that this was a lot more money than last year. And just to add a little nuance, staff were definitely involved, and, and the, but the final decision is always going to be made by the board. But what has been explained to me is that at some point in the future, staff will effectively bring forward what you might call a consent agenda. We have prepared this. You can approve this whole slate. Now, a board member on the endowment might say, I don't like that grant. I want to pull that off and talk about that. Or they might have one that they want to suggest, or they might want to fine-tune one. But in general, staff is doing the bulk of the work, and the endowment board is, you know, as the official board, they are putting the seal of approval. They are greenlighting this stuff. And last year, there was really an employee, maybe an employee in half. So the board had to do all the operational stuff. And, they, and Bill Cameron uh, told us, look, right now we're an operational board. We're moving into being a governance board. And all the experts we talked to said, that's not uncommon for a, for a young endowment, for a young foundation, but it's important for the sake of efficiency and, and, and really to do the best kind of work is to get away from that, is for the board to become more of a governance board. 
Bill Cameron told us they spent hundreds of hours, board members spent hundreds of hours working on these grants. So they're still very hands-on. Um, and we, we, it's hard to know how that exactly impacts the grant decisions. But we do know that that's, at least from Cameron's point of view, something the board has said they want to move away from. I do find it interesting that they're saying they had to stay involved when it was this higher amount of money because that's going to continue increasing in every future grant cycle for this endowment. Right now, they're capping the amount that they'll invest in a given year to 4% of the overall dollar amount of the endowment. And in the future, it'll have to be a minimum of 5%. So we are looking at them increasing the amount of money they give, give away rather than reducing it. So if that is the reasoning, then it's probably conti- going to continue being the case for a while. Well, that, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, I want to do a little podcast math here. So this is back of the napkin math. We're not, we're not going down to the decimal point here. But Kelly's right. The way the endowment was stood up, it's, it's current its current documents that that organize how it runs put a cap at 4% of $1.25 billion. And eventually, because of the way it's structured, the IRS will require to change from a public charity, which is it is now, to a private foundation and a minimum, a floor of 5%. That's tagged to the market value. So obviously, this can go up and down as the investments, um, which are in the stock market. You know, So it's a possibility that you could see a year where the stock market tanked and the endowment would put out less money. It's also possible you could see a gangbusters year on stock market, and the endowment would have to put out more money. But the important part is that switch from a 4% ceiling to a 5% floor. And 1% might not sound like a lot, but we're talking about $10 million at least. So 1% goes a long way when you're talking about 1% of a billion dollars. The other thing I want to point out is that there were a lot of numbers thrown at people this week, and we apologize. (laughs) Its numbers are really hard to digest, especially when you're hearing them on the radio. But when we say the endowment put out $53 million, the lion's share of that was in multi-year grants. In fact, only less than $2 million was in responsive one-year grants. So you're going to see a lot of that money put out over multiple years. So only about 20-something million, maybe around $25 million, will actually go out this calendar year. Actually, in the next week or so, those checks will go out. So if you're trying to wrap your head around this and think about what it will look like when the IRS requirements kick in and the endowment is mandated to put the full amount into the community, into just New Hanover County every year, everything that the endowment has done so far, all of the funding from last year, all of the funding, even the multi-year funding from this year, add that all together and you're looking at the ballpark of what they will have to do every year. So I think that's some important context because, yes, we are talking about the frustration that we have heard from the public this week. But whatever the issue that you are concerned about, and we've been contacted by a lot of organizations who work in a lot of different spaces, whatever you're concerned about, whatever that issue is, I think there's a pretty good chance the endowment is going to get to that issue because they're going to have to. Yeah, they're going to run out of things to fund eventually because there's just so much money going into this community. Uh, I do want to get to an event that occurred earlier this week. So after the endowment put out the press release saying what they were going to fund, they decided to have a listening session, which was really more like a Q&A, where Bill Cameron and William Buster sat up on a stage at the Harrelson Center and listened to people's questions and concerns related to the endowment. It seemed like they expected a more positive reaction, I think it's fair to say, than they actually got from the public. 
even organizations that did get funded seemed a little bit wary and had some criticisms about the endowment's way of looking at things. Uh, so I just want to dig into a couple of the reactions that we heard, starting with council member Kevin Spears. My name is Kevin Spears. I am a councilman from the city of Wilmington. And my first question is, the community feels as if disbursements aren't equitable and representative of the entire community. Do you feel as if the process was equitable and representative? And my second question is also the community is concerned of the minimal or missing initiatives concerning homelessness and the livelihoods of citizens outside of nursing. Nearly $53 million, you can correct me if I'm wrong, of grants being dispersed. Nearly two organizations, UNCW and Cape Fear Community College, got about half of that. Mm -hmm. And I think Ben pointed out a, a very good fact that they they have their own funding sources. They have their own fundraising capabilities. So I, I think the community is looking at this whole process a little bit sideways because those two organizations are, are pretty much autonomous and, and can fend for themselves in this community. Yeah. And, and other organizations are looking, saying, what about us? Yeah. And I know you kind of addressed it, but I'm just telling you what the people are telling me. And that's uh, Councilman Spears referencing a question we asked earlier about why the endowment chose to fund, you know, CFCC, uh, UNCW, the largest organizations in our region, big employers who already have, you know, even though education is chronically underfunded, compared to other nonprofits. UNCW has funding that is orders of magnitude more. Like one of the largest nonprofits in our region is Coastal Horizons, dwarfed by the budget of UNCW. So in any case, that's what Councilman Kevin Spears was building on. And here is some of William Buster's response. So thank you, uh, Councilman Spears, for, for your question. I think um, the, the, the first to your first point, do I believe that it was equitable and that we fund all the organizations? Uh, I have I want to remind folks that this is uh, this is uh, only our second time doing this. Uh, the the way we're structured, we're structured to be here for a long, long time. And so um, if we did not support a particular body of work this time around, I, I would hope that people understand that, that this is the opportunity to just continue to have the, the conversation and move the work forward. I'm not going to uh, uh, sit here and believe and say that we we got it perfect this time. Uh, we didn't. We, we This is going to be an evolving process as we get our legs up under us. Uh, but what I will say and I, what I can commit to is that we will we will listen and, and, and evaluate every proposal and every conversation based on the merit of the proposal. We, we won't turn down the opportunity to have any conversation. Uh, again, we're gonna be transparent and honest in telling people whether or not we believe there are strong opportunities, whether that's a large institution or whether that's a small institution. The, the opportunity for the collaborative that came to us for nursing, again, we didn't guide that conversation. They came to us after they've been having conversations. I would, I would hope that anyone else that, that wants to work on workforce opportunity, uh, work, uh, work on affordability and those kinds of things, have the collective conversation. It doesn't do us any good to have just one conversation around workforce opportunity. And so uh, my hope is, is that moving forward, we'll be able to support that kind of work uh, because that is one of the things we want to do. We want to actually lift up the, the livelihoods of folks in this community. We also heard from community members who were concerned about the smaller organizations in this community getting left behind. Uh, it seems like the organizations that did get this funding were some of the largest in the community, like you said. Uh, but smaller schools, smaller nonprofits with 
quarter million dollar annual budgets or smaller, uh, they don't seem to have gotten a lot of the attention of the endowment in this grant cycle. And there was a question about how the nonprofits that are that small would even be able to collaborate when they don't know who else is out there in the space. We heard from a mother in the audience named Melanie. This is what she said. You've mentioned a few times how much you appreciated the collaborative effort of um, the uh, UNCW and a couple other organizations, the New Hanover County Schools, to get together. They were very large organizations and had the manpower to do things like collaborate like that. Do you have any goals to help smaller organizations meet each other and learn how we could all collaborate together? And here is what Buster had to say in response. One of the things that I heard when I started uh, uh, doing rounds in this community was, and this was from nonprofit leaders, we need more capacity. William, I don't know if we're ready to receive all the resources that the endowment is going to put into our community. And so uh, uh, if, if the, the capacity is learning how to collaborate, then that is the capacity that will help organizations with. Uh, working together is not a natural thing for nonprofits, and, and it takes skill and it takes knowledge about how to make sure that, that one organization understands what the other organization does and what it can do and what it can't do. And so that takes working together. That takes supporting that conversation. To your point, it's not um, uh, uh, you, don't, you don't get an extra staff member uh, to go do the collaboration. It, it's, it's usually taking somebody from a job that they do every day to go be a part of the collaboration. And so hopefully we'll be able to have those kinds of conversations with organizations. However, though, I stress, I do stress that organizations have to be willing to work together um, to, to work with us on, on these issues. And Melody followed up by saying, yes, but do you have a plan? And I think that's something we heard from a lot of people was that if you are going to hold up the healthcare worker grant as maybe not a blueprint, but the type of thing the endowment would like to see, is there, I mean, the endowment has also said that they don't just want to be an ATM. And they really kind of were an ATM for the healthcare worker pipeline grant. You know, people just, a, a group of organizations came to them with a well-structured, well-thought-out plan, and the endowment funded it. Now, I'm sure they had some role in tweaking it and fine-tuning it, but in general, you know, the blueprints were there. The bones were there when they came to the endowment. But is there a way for the endowment to, in their own words, do more than just provide money? When they say they want to provide resources, they're using that word. They're saying resources instead of money because they want to imply that there's more on offer here than just cash. So the question was, how can you help small groups collaborate? And along those lines, another audience member actually asked if the endowment would provide a list of everyone who submitted a grant application so you could know who was in your space. Buster said he wasn't going to provide the applications, but that he would provide a list of names. And Bill Cameron pulled that back pretty quickly. We don't we won't share applications that people have submitted. But if you want to know who's applied, we can't share that information. Um, if, if people think that it will be useful to know who's gotten grants, uh, I mean, who's gotten proposals or submitted proposals, I wouldn't see that we can put that information out there. But for right, right now, if you want to know it, you got to ask us for the information. I'm going to say, let's think about it. Let's talk about it that way. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, for this reason, I don't want someone, and, and, and we have not talked about this, and, uh, and so I just put it on the table. I want to think about and I want to hear collaborative thinking of organizations that submitted an application that did not get funded, how does that appear to other people knowing that they submitted and didn't? they might not like that. And mm -hmm. I, I think before we 
flying out say we're going to publish it. I think That's we got to vet. I think we point. need to vet that, and we need yeah. to vet that with our applicants. Yeah, because it may not be doing the the applicants that did not get granted service to publish their name. So I think we need to vet that as as a as a as an organization. Yeah, before we commit to doing that. Yeah, we definitely see a little bit of a division between what staff say and what the board says. And since staff are more accessible than the board, but the board is the decision-making body on the organization, it makes it challenging to actually understand what the endowment will do. Yeah. So this was a question I thought was interesting, and it has to do with the endowment's board makeup. And that's actually, for the most part, not up to the endowment board, as we said. Five members are appointed by the county, six are appointed by Novant, two are sort of self-appointed. But it does speak to a public perception of who is in charge here. So here's the question from Anna Lee, who's one of the co-directors of the nonprofit Working Films. I guess I have a question about um, your long-term approach to centering uh, the voices of the people who are most impacted by systemic injustice. Um In philanthropy, historically and today, power is concentrated largely in the hands of the people who have always had the most power in our communities. Um, And frankly, I think when I look at the board of directors of this foundation, that is true. So how will you all join others who are in the philanthropic community across the country um, who are moving toward ceding some of their power to the people who are most impacted by injustice? in decision-making. The final decisions about who gets the grants from our organization are made by people who are representative of the, in our case, filmmakers and community-based organizations that we're serving. So I'm interested to hear about perhaps your long-term vision for how you could shift to put more power about what happens with these amazing funds that our community has access to in the hands of the people who daily continue to experience systemic uh, injustice. And here's how Bill Cameron responded to that. I, I hear what you're saying. The board is comprised of people appointed by a public body and a hospital board. It is not a self-perpetuating board. This board cannot uh, say, we're going to decide who, to, who will be the board members and, and we're going to make this little clubby thing and, and do our deal. I will say, I would also say, Every person on the board that I've served on from day one to to right now uh, cares about this community. We have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. Maybe we don't have all of those experiences that need to be represented, uh, but we have a lot of them. And those experiences will change year to year as the board members change year to year. But clearly, we want to be a board that understands what's going on in our community. Uh, That's one of the reasons we have our our community advisory council. They represent a different subset of people than maybe I do or or some other board members do. And that's why we want to have these listening sessions so that we can hear uh, what people are thinking. And if if there's concern that we're not uh, representative, we need to know that and how can we change that. But um, I, I really believe over time, you will see this organization serving all members regardless of where they are in this community. I think this is an interesting point to bring up because every single board member on this body owns property in New Hanover County, which is not the case for the 
if you were to pull 13 random people in New Hanover County, I don't think 100% of them would be homeowners. 40% of households in this county are renters. Uh, we also know that nine out of the 13 on that board have homes that are worth more than a million dollars. This is not a low resource organization. And so I think that some of the priorities that we're seeing on the grants that we got in this first cycle could potentially be interpreted that way, particularly since housing went onto the back burner in this grant cycle. Yeah, and we, we know the, the endowment insists that they are working on housing, but again, we're talking about public perception here. You are looking at affluent, well-connected people on this board who did not come out with a moonshot on housing after you know several years, and even endowment members that we've endowment staff members that we've talked to acknowledge that the clock has kind of been ticking since the hospital was sold, because the public wanted to see dividends paid back on selling our our county hospital. And so, in any case, I think this question prompts us to think about power and who's in charge in broader terms than just race. Although we should just for a moment here note that race has been an issue. When the hospital sale was approved by Attorney General Josh Stein, that included the creation of what was then called the Community Foundation, we're now calling it the Endowment. As part of that approval, Josh Stein ordered the board to add two members to increase the range of experiences and ethnic diversity that was on that board. Those are the two members that the board appoints itself because that kind of diversity was important to the AG's office. And recently, when New Hanover County appointed former commissioners Woody White and Pat Cusack, who are both white, to the endowment board, that effectively removed the only person of color that the county had appointed, Dr. Virginia Adams, along with Hannah Gage. So this caused some concern in the AG's office, although we have to note that Josh Dine has not taken any further action. We followed up a couple weeks after that appointment process, and his office had nothing else to say. But in the past, the focus has kind of been on racial diversity on the board. And I think what this question might have us look at is a different kind of diversity. Not to put too fine a point on it, but we see ethnic diversity on this board, but not class diversity on this board. Yeah. And that is not the endowment's problem alone. So expert we've talked to said, yeah, people who end up on the boards of major philanthropic institutions tend to be successful people. They tend to be well-connected. They tend to be affluent. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it, but it does, you know, it does skew the board in a way that, you know, ethnic diversity doesn't really reveal. So many times boards, because they are not living a life of restricted means, they're not living in poverty, they're not living with you know, crushing debt. They're not living with housing insecurity or food insecurity. Often these boards will rely on community advisory boards or what the endowment calls their community advisory uh, council. And that's sort of how Bill Cameron w was gesturing at that is that like, that's how they're hearing from the people. We also asked an interesting question uh, that kind of touches on the fact that I am only referencing background conversations in this conversation. Nobody really wants to go on the record to criticize the endowment because of a fear of retaliation. People are intimidated because they worry that if they are to criticize or to suggest things too loudly publicly, they might never get the funding that they need to address serious issues in this community. I've spoken with a lot of nonprofits who feel like they cannot criticize the endowment, the process, the board, or any other aspect of this entity 
without permanently jeopardizing their chances of ever being funded. Yeah. That's not an allegation. That's just what I've heard. Yeah. Is there anything you think the endowment can do to address that sentiment? We've got 13 individual members of the board. I've been in meetings with them, and I, I will say this. I don't, I don't know if saying we have thick skin is correct. I don't think that's the right way to say it. But we can hear criticism, and sometimes we need criticism to, to see things, which means everybody needs to voice their opinions. And sometimes those opinions are very, very different. And you need to be able to say things. And you need to be professional enough and responsible enough that you listen to the people that have ideas contrary to yours. Then you take those ideas and develop them and come up with better ideas, and then you put them in action and perform. So I would tell anybody in this audience and in this community, they should not be concerned about being blunt. Actually, please be polite. I, it will, I think we would appreciate being polite, but you can be brutally blunt. Mm -hmm. I, I say emphatically, it's not correct that they're going to jeopardize their position. If they have points they, they want us to consider and they raise it and they give us good and uh, objective reasons why they feel differently from what we did or why they think we made a mistake. And let me go back to one other point and say that. When we formed, a, when, when our board got together early on and we're trying to develop our strategic plan and all of this, all the things we did for, for a lot of meetings, the board said collectively, we will not be afraid to make mistakes. We're going to try to be bold. We're going to try to do things that are uh, truly transformational. And if we do that, we will make mistakes. And that we as a board cannot be afraid of that. People out here want to tell us, you guys made a mistake. Well, we know we made, we're going to make, we have made or we will make mistakes. And we need to, if we make mistakes, we need to correct them. And we need feedback to know when we made mistakes. Don't be afraid. Come tell us. I, I, I think, uh, thank you, uh, Bill. And, I, and, and that's a perfect uh, response. But I also will add this, uh, Ben. I know that in the nonprofit sector, uh, philanthropy has had uh, power dynamic. There's, there's clear power differentials. Uh, in philanthropy as opposed to the nonprofits, those who are seeking opportunities. And so as an organization, as a staff, we acknowledge that. And we say to, we say to folks um, that uh, we are open to that. The only way you outrun the power dynamics is through relationships, continuous conversations. And I, and I hope that you will at least give us that opportunity to develop a relationship. Uh, if, if, uh, if you believe that we've not listened to you, like Bill said, tell us, we're open. Um, um, I, I do have a, a thick skin. I, I do believe that the only way I learn is through uh, failing fast, Bill. I think that's what you're trying thank, to say. Thank you. Uh, it's failing fast. Uh, and hopefully uh, folks will be able to kind of bring and be honest with us and tell us. I know there are some folks who are more comfortable with it than others. So if you know a friend, you got a friend that, that's more bold, tell them to ask me the question if you don't feel comfortable in asking. So I think that is a wait and see. I mean, there's probably nothing the endowment, in all fairness, there's probably nothing the endowment can do to assuage paranoia. But there are things they can do to make sure that people who actually feel like they were left out of conversations are included. And that probably will take time. And so that is a wait and see. The other question that we have heard from people along these lines about the communication has to do with getting not a yes, but a no. 
Yeah, there were a lot of people in the arts and culture community of nonprofits that applied for grants from the endowment and not a single art or culture grant was given. Arts and culture are not necessarily in the four buckets that the endowment is focused on. And when we've asked about this issue, um, Bill Cameron has said, I personally love the arts, but I only speak for myself and not for the entire board. So that sounds like a, a no, but it's also not really a no. There's never a clear, you will never get funding from us. And uh, and William Buster has grown fond of saying, it's not a no, it's a not yet. But there are clearly some grants that don't fit what the endowment wants. And we're wondering how many not yets should there be just for the sanity of the people who are applying and the relationship between the community and the endowment. If they are seen as genuinely engaging with people and saying, you know, here's how you might restructure this grant application to align with what we want to do in the community. That's a good thing. And that might take a couple of years. But if it becomes this endless feedback loop where people just keep applying and getting no, and the endowment wants is basically saving face by never saying no and never being the bad guy, but stringing people along for years, that is going to cause, I don't know, it's going to leave a bad taste in some people's mouth. There's one last thing that I'd like to bring up from this Q&A from the audience. Sierra Washington from the Northside Food Co-op, her organization actually did get a grant, but she voiced some concerns that I think were pretty accurate to how the nonprofit community has reacted to this cycle. Hi, uh, I'm Sierra Washington with the Northside Food Co-op. I have more of a comment. I'm I'm grateful that you guys give us the time to speak and grateful for the endowment staff. I think they've been great with a lot of the organizations here. Um, one of the things that was mentioned multiple times today and in a lot of the mission and vision and values of the endowment is this idea of collaboration. And I think um, the mother who spoke before um, asked a really great question about you know, what can the endowment do to support our collaboration as an organization? And I just kind of want to, as a statement, say that a lot of the organizations in here support communities who have a scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. And I might be so bold to say that a lot of the nonprofits in here may also hold that scarcity mindset because this type of money hasn't been in our community before. And so I think it's exciting um, and important for collaboration to happen. And I think as an organization ourselves, we strive to have collaboration and so do many of the other organizations here. We just hit road bumps a lot or we come into the scarcity mindset of like, all right, well, I need to stop this collaboration so I can make sure I have enough money to keep my current staff or things like that. And so we've talked about that capacity building, but I just, I want to preface that as, you know, it's not that communities, uh, organizations here, nonprofits don't want to collaborate and they don't have you know, not just the capacity to collaborate, but that scarcity and needing to find a stable ground in that. I hope and I'm excited for the nonprofit 101 and 101 and other resources that the endowment may be able to do to help us, you know, relieve from that scarcity. I think one of the most important things that she touches on here is this idea of nonprofits being in a scarcity mindset and being in a silo because of that. I mean, many nonprofit directors have described to me that they are basically treading water between trying to get donations and grants and do the work. There simply is not time to reach out to other nonprofits in the community, to map where the problems are, to coordinate in any meaningful way. They are just trying to do the work and keep their organizations from shuttering. And 
The endowment is asking people to break out of that, to stop thinking small, to start thinking collaboratively. And I think what a lot of people in the audience were asking for was, can you help us do that? When the first grant cycle was rolled out, one of the buzzwords we heard a lot was capacity. That these were grants that were going to help smaller nonprofits get ready to take on strategic grants. Because if you're, a, you know, if you're a quarter million dollar revenue nonprofit, you're not going to be able to handle a ten million dollar grant by yourself. And so one of the thoughts was, okay, let's maybe they need more office space, maybe they need more employees, maybe they need, you know, maybe they need equipment so that they can, in the coming years, take on a moonshot. But I don't think that's something you can accomplish in one year. And I think the sense is people are now looking to the endowment for more one more direction about what exactly do you want us to apply for and to help us do the kind of thing that you are asking us to do. Frankly, I think there's also a little bit of fear for organizations where there is overlap that there will be winners and losers who come out of that. Um, they're supposed to take a step back from that competition mindset. But at the same time, if you are picking a specific organization that's going to handle a specific issue, and there are three other organizations that handle that as well, that is picking winners or losers. And so there is inevitably going to be competition. That competition could become collaboration potentially, but sometimes it does make sense to just consolidate all of the resources on one issue into one bucket. And I think that's a part of the conversation that the endowment hasn't been having publicly so far. Yeah. And that doesn't mean they won't be willing to have that conversation in the future. But again, we're talking about how the public feels, how the community feels this week. And I think a good example of what you're talking about is the over $3 million that the endowment gave to uh, Beacon Education, which is the foundation that supports Glow Academy. That's the, the front-facing organization that most people are familiar with. This was founded by Judy Girard, a longtime president of the Food Network and HGTV, who is kind of famous in nonprofit circles locally for being able to whip out her phone and call celebrity chefs like Emeril Lagasse, uh, Chiara De Laurentiis, Rachel Ray. I don't know if Rachel Ray considers herself a chef, but these are celebrities, right, who can show up at a landfall fundraiser and raise a million dollars in a day. In fact, if you Google Glow Academy raises one million dollars, you'll see the news article I'm referencing. That's not hyperbole. So our question to the endowment was, why give so much money to an organization that has a great mission and is doing great work, but is clearly able to do that work under their own steam and raise money whenever they need it? And Bill Cameron told us, He's a fan of leverage, by which he means he likes knowing that their funding is only going to help them grow and get even more funding from private donors. And that Glow, because it has raised millions of dollars using this kind of you know, celebrity events, that they've proven they can handle money. So what he said was capacity and need. And I think one of the questions we're hearing from the community is, okay, well, it seems to be more about capacity than need because lots of people brought forward grants that would help them deal with issues. So there's a need. You know, we know housing is in need. We know community safety is in need. We know, you know, early childhood education is in need. But if capacity is really the make it or break it, if you have to prove you can handle $5 million, $3 million, $2 million before you can get it, how do you get into that? It's like the, uh, the old paradox of you need a job to get a job. You need capacity to get capacity. How are these smaller nonprofits supposed to be part of the conversation? And are they ever going to be part of the conversation? Absolutely. 
And we should say that during this public meeting, Buster teased something he called Nonprofit 101, and you heard Sierra Washington reference that. I think a lot of smaller nonprofits are excited about what this might be, but we haven't heard a lot of details. And so I hope it will be a good program. I hope it will help address the issue that we're talking about here. But again, the public doesn't know a lot about this yet. The nonprofit community doesn't know a lot about this yet. So it doesn't really help ameliorate those concerns, at least not yet. One thing that I will mention, uh, in all fairness, in our conversation with Kevin Maurer, he said that we have all of the resources we need, except we don't have patience from the community. This is a young organization. They're still getting their feet under them. As Bill Cameron said on stage the other night, we are crawling or walking. We're somewhere between those two ideas, if you ask different board members. But we want to run. They need the time to get there. So I think that we will see maybe better communication in the future. We might see more of this collaborative approach that they're, that they're looking for in the future. We might just have to wait and give them the time to get there. That's right. I mean, again, we are talking about a philanthropic organization that will have to, not could choose to, will have to put $60 million, give or take, into New Hanover County and New Hanover County alone year after year after year. So, yes, there was disappointment this year. There was frustration. It feels like communication broke down here and there. The endowment will grow. It will, it will add to staff. It will grow better relationships into the community. It seems almost impossible that with that much money that they would, even if just by accident, not fix some serious social problems. And I know that they, there are people there who do care about these issues. So we do want to make it clear that we are taking the temperature of the community this week. And if it seems odd that a community that just got $53 million, that there is so much frustration and confusion, well, that is probably because this is a very rare situation. Brand new philanthropic organizations do not often fall out of the sky and start spurting out money. It just almost never happens. So we are, in a certain sense, in completely uncharted waters. So I just think, to be fair, we have to lay that out. But also, I think... Without pushback, without feedback, without criticism, I am not confident the endowment will know where it's making missteps. Because as much as some of the nonprofits have been criticized by the endowment for being in their silo, the endowment is in a silo of its own. A very wealthy, very powerful, potentially very influential silo, but a silo nonetheless, unless they have those conversations. And we will continue to track the endowment and what it's doing. We will continue to hear from other nonprofits off the record, on the record, however on the record they want to be. And we will continue bringing those criticisms to the endowment, even if it's anonymized, so that they're aware of the way they're being interpreted by the public. All right. I think the last thing that I want to say about the endowment, not forever, of course, but for this episode of the newsroom, is about the endowment as a story a story that we're covering at WHQR. So full disclosure, over the last two years, WHQR's management has twice applied for grants from the endowment, and both times it was rejected. And I've, of course, had people joke with me privately, oh, maybe that's why you're so hard on the endowment. Maybe that's why you're covering them so closely. And I can categorically say that is not true. Another disclosure, we've also received a grant to cover the endowment from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And they've connected us with a lot of experts and given us a lot of good guidance on how to think about philanthropy and the nonprofit world. But honestly, we would still be covering this story even if we weren't working with The Chronicle. 
And that's because this is one of the craziest stories I have ever covered. I think my colleagues in the newsroom agree that this is one of the wildest, most potentially landscape-altering, paradigm-shifting stories that has ever happened in New Hanover County. And I just hope that other people are paying attention. I know that this may seem like a blip on the news radar, especially since this drop happened right before Christmas. Blink and you miss it. I promise you, as Kelly said, we will be back next year with a lot more coverage of this. If you're not paying attention to the endowment yet, you might want to. It's going to make a big difference. How that happens and what the quality of that difference is really does remain to be seen. But if you're not watching, maybe check it out. Thank you all for listening to this special edition of The Newsroom. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy holiday season to tune in on something that, like Ben said, matters a lot. All right. Well, that is it for this special edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to Kevin Maurer, Lakeisha McDay, William Buster, and Chair Bill Cameron, who all agreed to speak with us about the endowment's ongoing work, warts and all. Also thanks to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, for helping provide guidance and some context for covering what is a very large and complicated story. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>